I love that so much. Um, I was think I was showing it to people who really hate metal, and I just thought, oh, that, do you know what? That is really, really good. Um, I didn't know <clears throat> whether we thought of the podcast first or whether you came up with that song. And then I just had this image in my head of you when you get to the palm muted, uh, chuggy bit. You just go, oh, do you know what would be really good here? Well, words. Tr- truth be told, <laughs> truth be told, I did actually write that about three years ago. Really? Just for shits and giggles. But what was what was it for? Well, so me and an old friend of mine were going to start a fresh metal band at the time called Manslaughter, and at the time, <laughs> of it, at the don't time, start making man of war jokes straight away. Yeah, no, don't worry, we'll get into that. We've got some uh, some hot topics to yeah. cover later, but uh, yeah, essentially, we were going to start a band called Manslaughter, and that never happened. Probably do you, because do you speak to the friend anymore. Oh, he's in America now. Isn't he? Oh. Big Although, time. Yeah, big time. Uh, however, given the subject matter of what we were going to be covering, we decided to probably not tackle it anyway. Oh, salacious. <laughs> that being said, I'm sure we'll come back to it eventually. But welcome everyone to the X in Ferris podcast. This is a podcast about heavy metal. Uh, my name is Matthew and with me is my co-host Tom Watson. Hey. Hey, I, could, I think we should just take this moment as a little bit of a disclaimer that neither, well, I don't want to speak for you, Matt, but just shut the fuck up for a minute. <laughs> um, we're not metal historians. Nor do we claim to be. We don't at claim least, to be. No, at least not on recording. Yeah. Uh, we are, what, metal Enthusiasts. Enthusiasts yeah. is so dicky, isn't yeah. it? Um, but if we called ourselves historians, we'd set ourselves up for a massive fall. Well, um, we're going to do that anyway. Yeah, so. so if anything, don't listen to us. Right. Yeah, <laughs> take it with the biggest pinch of salt <coughs> if the seeker yeah. produces. Do you know what's a really good source of information? Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's all right, yeah. So whatever we're going to address, just go onto yeah. the Wikipedia just page and you're going to find yeah. it. Google search, that's all That's all that's required, yeah. really. Um, so we're going to uh, be addressing uh, our first topic. So a little bit of the, an additional disclaimer, as I feel like it needs to happen, is we were actually planning on, we've been threatening doing this podcast for a long time. Years. Yeah, and it's just taken a while, whether it's nerves, got the jitters, or, it's, it's not, not or just technical... Just not enough technical proficiency. Proficiency. We were poor to get it. We onto, couldn't afford. Yeah, the, we the, couldn't uh, afford equipment. microphones. <laughs> so yeah. So <laughs> we. So this week on Oaks and Ferris, we're going to be doing a few choice cuts. Thank you from the year nineteen eighty nine. So we were originally going to do nineteen eighty eight because we were both because <laughs> we were both born in that year. And we wanted to see how jaded... Oh, you jaded. gave it away, straight away. We wanted to see how jaded and old we were and see how those albums that were there when we got pushed into the world yeah, from betwixt our Ooh. mother's loins yeah, and how they've held up. But unfortunately, <laughs> because... <mother's> yes. <laughs> but unfortunately, because we're lazy as fuck, yeah. uh, we've had to resort to doing it from 1989. True. But before we 
get into that, uh, we're just going to have a quick look at the news that happened this week. This is the news. In the metal sphere. Yeah. So what have you got for me, Tom? Firstly, I guess we should talk about Ozzy uh, being... There's a, there's a petition online uh, to have Ozzy Osbourne knighted. Um, it's not a new petition. Uh, I think it's a it, third attempt, isn't it? It's a third attempt, but I think it's a, the same petition that came out in 2014, and it mm. just keeps on going in waves. I don't know how that works as a petition, whether there's actually like a um, an end date, like a deadline that you have to hit. Because you could have a petition that would have started two decades ago, and very gradually <laughs> it just starts to be accruing all of these signatures until you get to like one million or something like that, and then people have to take note of it. Yeah, well, I mean, what metrics are they looking at? They're looking at return visitors, or is this just an accumulative? But I mean, they, they do that a lot. People actually um, post up online, say, "Please sign this petition. I've already signed it five times." <laughs> but what website? What website is this on? Um, I don't actually know. Uh, I think it's. I don't think it's a. Because it's not like something like that. Gov. Um, gov. Uk. Oh, certainly not. No. Uh, let's have a quick look, actually. Uh, I checked because I wanted to see how many signatures have been uh, accrued so far. Gov.uk has had enough traffic in the past couple of weeks. And we know how petitions are going right now. I've really, really dated this podcast. Have you signed that? Have I signed it? Article 50 petition. Well, I wasn't even in the UK at the time of the original referendum. So... it, does that have any relevance whatsoever? <laughs> Absolutely, because I don't know whether I should chime in because I didn't chime in originally. I was in Austria at the time and I was literally on the way back from... We got through the little customs area with my Austrian partner and the results came through and I was like, you, you just might as well turn back now. Yeah, there's there's nothing here for you One now. way to <laughs> Essentially, yes, I did sign it, but... Yeah. Yeah. Multiple times. There's just uh, <clears throat> world governments quaking in their boots when everyone gets on change.org. Uh, it was change.org. It was change.org. So it was an organisation. Yeah. Um, and so far, I think the original um, target to hit was 5K. And currently it uh, is on... 10,404 people have signed. 10,000. Have you signed it? No, I haven't signed it. Neither I haven't, seen <laughs> I haven't no, signed it yet. But see no need to. The thing is, is that... If he deserves it, he'll get it. I think he does need some good news at the moment. He's had a pretty Rough. shoddy yeah. 2019 so far. He's had to cancel a number of tour dates. Uh, he contracted pneumonia. Um, and he is now out of critical care, but... <sighs> How old is he now? He is about th- 41. <laughs> <laughs> but he must be he must be way older than, like, a Lemmy. Like, Lemmy was, like, 70. And how old is Ozzy now? He must be, like, and 65. <laughs> Ozzy's not... Ozzy's not destroying his body to the same level that Lemmy was, like, towards the end of his death. Like, he just kept going. But I have a theory that Lemmy's death 
because obviously 2016 was the year of the uh, celebrity death. I have a certain feeling that Lemmy going right at the end of 2015 was that plug that just got pulled out. And all those people that needed to die within that year were just like, well, fuck it, if he's gone, then we're going to have to go. Because <laughs> he can withstand a fucking nuclear blast. So, Or not, as or not. transpired. <laughs> but, yeah. But, I mean, like, there are less deserving people who have received knighthoods and damehoods. Let's not leave the women out of this. <laughs> Let's slam them as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I can imagine, because I know that there's been a number of people who have not accepted knighthoods previously, like David Bowie being one. Mm. I know that because Keith Richards declined a CBE and then just started slamming Mick Jagger for his uh, knighthood. Right. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, good luck to him. Yeah, he's, he's been all right so far, Bloody hasn't he? Him, so. yeah. But the Osbournes in general have had quite um, a lot of attention um, in the past couple of weeks, not just Ozzy, but Sharon Osbourne, I think, had a, an interview recently where she admitted that she, she trying asked... to get a threesome Yeah, she, she asked um, Matt LeBlanc from Friends and the remake of Space. Lost in Space. Lost in Space, yeah. Um, she... Uh, Offered uh, Matt a threesome with Ozzy. Right. Um, don't know. I haven't. We've yet to hear Ozzy's response on that one, <laughs> or whether it even happened. But or whether he can respond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, and other than that, he obviously he's had uh, pneumonia and um, been a bit of a developing one recently. But Chris Fenn. Yeah, you probably know now, more about this than I do ex-Slipknot member, although it seems to be very ambiguous as to whether he has actually left or not, because some of the some of the comments made not just by him, I mean, he seems to be pretty much assured himself that he's out of the band, yeah. whereas uh, the other members of Slipknot seem to, I don't know whether they're just trying to play that card of being like, we never wanted him to leave, but now he already has. Yeah. But So, I mean, as the story goes, apparently uh, Corey Taylor and uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael Sean... It's the clown one. Basically, <laughs> it's the clown one. Uh, they have been accused of uh, starting extra, I guess, essentially merch companies um, across the interwebs and taking a larger cut of the profits. And he's, in fact, gone on to then say that he's actually not been properly compensated for even years prior to that, uh, being in the band and going on tour and recording. So he's been given a sort of take-it-or-leave-it contract mm. because they're about to go in and record their sixth album. Is he going to be... Uh involved with that one at all well i thought it was already in progress so if he hasn't been if he hasn't been involved now then yeah i doubt whether he's i think it's probably going to steam ahead i don't think that they're going to sit about and wait for them to come to some kind of agreement as they're to how gonna, they sell t-shirts on their big cartel like, they're not going to wait for a second class citizen to uh <laughs> to arrive to knock around a few pots and pans yeah, and I mean, here's, like, here's the thing with that, is the fact that like I am all about making sure that all band members are absolutely treated equal. 
But there's a lot of band members, isn't there? And I don't know whether all of them are quite shouldering the same responsibilities as others in terms of the writing Mm. and also... Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I think quite a lot of what makes... I think quite a lot of the appeal of Slipknot is that kind of experience performance thing like they're not necessarily contributing to it but when you go see them live just the idea of seeing yeah just seeing like these eight people on stage going i mean i don't know whether you've watched it but there is there is a video on youtube which i don't know what they were doing it was i think it's like some spanish music festival but it was the worst mixed because I'm pretty sure they they have their little like rider things set up before they go in. They're yeah. like, just don't mic up the percussionists. <laughs> like, apart from the kegs, you can do the kegs, but just don't do those big tom things that they're playing. They're jumping all about because they're going to ruin your mics anyway. Yeah. So that's Chris. Over that's there. Chris. Uh, that's Corey. Um, if Chris comes up to you and just says, "Oh, can you just help me with the mix?" Just, just turn it down. Yeah, just just ignore it. But it, but this video is nothing apart from the percussion, a little bit of drums from Joey Jordison for reference. Yeah, and for context. Yeah, for context and the DJ, and it is the worst thing I've ever heard. Like they're not in time whatsoever. They're not in time with each other, and I don't think they're in time with themselves. But would you? I mean, would you want to get rid of that extra element? Because there is that... I mean, now everyone knows what they look like behind the mask. So I think that that's the only... That's the one last gimmicky thing that they've got going on Mm. is that performance element. Um, And I don't know whether they... I don't know whether they could just get away with it with just just the clown. And it also... Going back to what you said about um, a democracy within a band, like... I think an exception to that rule should be someone like um, Happy Mondays and Bez. Bez. <laughs> Just like, if he's getting equal pay as as the musicians, there's something there's something something right. wrong there. Yeah. Right? But Chris Fenn, I mean, he he seems like he would regard himself as one of the founding members of Slipknot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who are we to say that he's not? like contributing just as much as yeah, and that's any what, other member. I think that's what the uh, the lawyer, his lawyer was saying as well. Mm. The thing that I find so funny about this story is that every article that you see of it online, uh, there's a picture of Chris Fenn in his gimp mask looking <laughs> <laughs> looking perceptibly sad. <laughs> just in the eyes. It's just like, the nature of the mask. Yeah, he's <laughs> just looking at it like, please feel sorry for me. Looking like... A bit of a dickhead. Yeah. Ba- boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, well done. Yes, very Thank you. Very good. But I mean, but where, because I mean, obviously he's been living off this money for the last, I mean, how long they've been together? Like, actually, it would have been oh, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. They released their self titled in 99. So yeah, it would have been 20 years. And I don't know, where would you go from here? Because obviously, Joey Jordison went to Murder Dolls, but the less said about that, the better. Are you sure about that? Yeah. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to do it. I need to defend that album to we'll the grave. Put, we'll put a whole episode towards Murder Dolls on Wednesday 13. Oh, do you have to? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, when we're, scraping the bottom of the, when we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, or the keg <laughs> yeah. in this. Come on, man. That was good. 
But yeah, I just can't see oh, where he's going to go. Rating your own from... jokes. Unbelievable. <laughs> I just can't see where he's going to go from here. Like, what what possible thing is he going to have on his resume for starting a new band? Well, I would I assume that he'd probably start a new band. Yeah. Other than that, or he's going to be probably bar back in, yeah. in a uh, pub somewhere. Just downstairs with the kegs. Like, I, I, Chris, are you down there? <laughs> bang, 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 bang. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, lawsuits, very quickly, did you hear about um, David uh, Silveria from uh, of X Corn fame countersuing Corn? They're all getting very, very litigious recently, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they really are. But have you? Or have litigious. You <laughs> What's with um, all these new metal bands just getting really, really... They've hit that age, detail. though, haven't they? Like, yeah. uh, what, they were, like... They must Bubbles have been, burst. Yeah, 18, 18 to 25-year-olds. They're having a whale of a time. Now they're hitting, yeah. like, what? I think Fred Durst is 49, I want to say. Yeah. Like, they're, you know, they're getting on. Yeah. They're a bit more... Savvy-minded in terms of the law. Wayne Static is... Dead? 17? <laughs> forever, Dead. forever at one age. <laughs> R.I.P. God bless Yeah. In a way. In a way. Not, not his guitarist, though. No. Um, he left the band, I think... 2004. 14? 2000. Oh, shit, yeah, no, it, was. it was. a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the... Um, it's the allegations, the uh, legislation that's come like later on than that, um, and he's called Fieldy a cowardly little bitch, um, <laughs> and he's claimed that the current drummer lacks groove and stuff like that. And he sued them. Uh, he sued Corn due to uh, sort of unpaid earnings or something like that, um, and then he tried to like circumvent the van by. Uh, getting his royalties from I can't remember what they're called like Sound Exchange or something like that it's like so back and forth and basically well, Korn, no one's getting any royalties I think it's Korn. pretty simple you know the reason why he left Corn Corn sorry Corn was because uh, apparently he was leaving to be like a underwear model oh I didn't know that yeah yeah because yeah. he's, he's like? uh, well I haven't seen the pigs I haven't gone into that Google hole long enough. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he used to be like a relatively good looking dude. And from the still shot that I saw against this news article, I think the money has dried up slightly. So <laughs> I think I know the genesis of of why this has come about and he's wanting some of that, that sweet, sweet corn money. Yeah, because he claimed it was breach of contract or something like that. Um, but then he said he would reunite with corn for a rock and roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Mm. And he got denied. What <laughs> like, is he doing? Oh, no idea. Is it, yeah, I mean, I don't know why you would... You, people don't don't just invite themselves back no, in. Like. No, they really don't. And the um, sort of the karma in the band, like imagine having that first conversation, like first interaction with Fieldy for one. <laughs> it's just like, um, yeah, I did call you, call you a cowardly bitch. little bitch. Um, but do you mind if I um, play bitch. drums for a little while? <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, so David Severia there. On a bit more of a uh, weightier topic... Um, something that has been quite controversial that's come out this week is the new video by the band Ramstein, who I've never been like a particularly big fan of. 
Um, I see the appeal. I just don't really get it because all their songs sound exactly the same. Well, it's it's in German. Yeah, it's in German. So, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so we thought that it would be worth ta- uh, tackling this particular subject because on our first episode the thing that we really want to get into is allegations of anti-semitism and the holocaust so have you had a chance to watch the video uh what triumph of the will yeah uh yeah i've watched the video and i don't want to sound like a contrarian here because i do think they have overstepped the mark. But within context of watching the video and the yeah. history and trajectory of Germany is what they're... Tr- I mean, the song is called Deutschland. And they they have a play on um, Albi McFry in the uh, video as well. But in context of the, the song, the, the meaning behind the song, and also just the video from start to end... I don't think it is inherently anti-Semitic. I do think it is crass and mm. I do think it's immoral and I wouldn't put it in my video if I was doing a video on Deutschland. So uh, there, there's two sides of it here. I don't know what take you would have on that. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I think that I pretty much fall in exactly the same kind of camp. Like when I watched it... I was, mine camp. Yeah, mine <laughs> I'm leaving it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, like, I mean, the thing is, is that, I mean, art is supposed to get a reaction out of people. And they are a band that have been trying to get a reaction out of people for a long time. They're also a band that has come from a country that in the not too distant past has had some tumultuous times, to say yeah. the least. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it is that thing of, of if anyone's going to say it, it's going to have to be someone from that country. If they're going to address it, they have to almost be self-reflective. And I kind of feel like they have, but then again, it's just the execution of it. Like, I don't think yeah. anything should be off the table. I think um, there's a fine line between um, acknowledging your past and then parodying it yeah, uh, or parading it around as if it's like... I don't know, there there was something about that, especially that very controversial scene. Yeah. Where it was tasteless, where they could have have addressed it in a little bit more of a subtle way, but being Rammstein and probably aiming towards the Pornhub demographic, (laughs) uh, they they thought that was probably the, the best way in which they would get publicity and they get a lot of promotion out of it and it has worked in their favor because a lot of people that don't listen to Ramstein, people that are I mean people metal, are talking about it on the Guardian like it's yeah it's funny, I mean yeah media media outlets who would never really address a, yeah like, we're addressing it yeah absolutely and we're at the forefront of media so exactly yeah <laughs> um but yeah I just I don't think I think there's been a very reactionary approach like the immediate need to condemn something because it is such a sensitive topic i think for me it's a no yeah in the grand I'll, scheme I'll of it, things i'll give it a good hard no no yeah. but and I, the song is a, a fucking awful oh yeah it just sounds exactly the same as everything they've done previously and yeah. nine minutes nine minutes i mean the intro alone i mean the let's credits. so this this is a uh 
this is a quote from uh, Felix Klein, who's the Commissioner of Anti-Semitism in Germany. He says, uh, I consider this a tasteless exploitation of artistic freedom. Mm, which it is. And yeah, absolutely. But I can think of worse things that I've done that could be considered a tasteless exploitation. Are you going to address them no, now? We'll, we'll, no, we'll bring it up at another time. After. I need content and I need when to that pace red myself. Light isn't flashing. Yeah, I need to pace myself across this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the lyrics of it, and they have aligned themselves with more left-wing tendencies like they've previously addressed that they consider themselves a left-wing band even though they have all the imagery but that is just shock value and every artist to some extent is going to engage yeah it is cheap in it yeah and it doesn't it kind of almost feels like it shadows over what what they're actually trying to produce yeah but i mean yeah if you if you look at some some lyrics behind it it's just i mean that's the thing is, is that the, the lyrics don't translate particularly well. You've got Germany, my heart in flames, want to love you, want to damn you. Germany, your breath is cold, so young and yet so old. Germany. Profound. Yeah. Rhymes, no hot take on that one. Rhymes work. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think that you can't just watch the video and then come to a conclusion. Probably... You can about the execution of it, but not necessarily the meaning behind it. I think you have to take it as a whole. Yeah, I um, I fear that when metal and other fringe genres and extreme music and underground music, whenever it comes into the forefront of people's psyche and their, it's in arm's reach of more of a mainstream audience. Uh, and I know that sounds really arrogant to say that, or but for the most part, underground music is underground for a very specific reason. So when mm. whenever it becomes something that um, catches the eye of reference man, so to speak, so like the, the white middle class right wing male, um, it's going to be misinterpreted and it's going to it's going to become something that's um, almost too dangerous for public consumption. And I think uh, the problem is with Ramstein is that you and I can look at that considering that we listen to extreme music all the time and we can You're see familiar it. with We can see it within right? context yeah. of what it what it is intended and we can say it is tasteless and um, whilst it might not be inherently anti-Semitic, it is still wrong as what we've addressed. But a lot of other people that don't listen to extreme music and are going to find the extremity in that video so strong and so mm. severe that it's going to have some sort of negative impact on a smaller community of music listeners or yeah so like well-intentioned just poorly executed poorly executed and probably not good in the long run and probably rubbish music as well probably definitely rubbish, rubbish music. music yeah finally i just want to uh very briefly uh skim over the dirt mm. i have no interest in watching this film whatsoever mm. yeah but it's passive watching isn't it yeah so, but i've got so much queued up in my netflix queue already yeah right. I, I mean i have watched it you have watched it yeah oh, oh man <laughs> but you were you were motley crew fan no. anyway no no 
I think it. I think they are scum, subhuman scum. <laughs> uh, I, I genuinely do think they uh, should not be lauded um, as much as they are. If you take them individually, they're not the best people. No. So Tommy Lee uh, this week uh, has uh, reacted rather poorly to um, a review of The Dirt. So not reacted poorly to The Dirt, but to no, a review f- of The Dirt. he fucking loves it. Oh, really? They love it. Motley Crue are bang into it. But yeah, Tommy Lee's um, retorted to this uh, review of The Dirt. Uh, I can't remember what the source was of it, but um, he tweeted online the, um, the critic. And the critic, uh, quite rightly, um, sort of preempted people before going into watching The Dirt, to not watch The Dirt. Mm. He basically said, let me save you some time, don't watch it. Yeah. And Tommy Lee did not react to this particularly well at all. Well, it's that Rotten Tomatoes thing, isn't it, of people changing their perception of the film and yeah. arguing whether they're even going to watch it. But if it's on Netflix, it's readily available. So Exactly. Um, so Tommy Lee said... Basically, what is this guy talking about? He doesn't know anything about the film. I think he he's a him, film critic. I think he called him a little girl. Okay. In the tweet, like little girl, you weren't you weren't there. Okay, well, you know what it was like. Well, don't let him get too close to him. It just further reinforces <laughs> that these allegedly in Motley Crue <laughs> are misogynists. They they're not in touch with sort of what's. Uh, politically correct uh, and how to present themselves and how to um, sustain some sort of like respectable reputation online um, but yeah uh, but what's your opinion on the film uh, I watched it I really hate them I, mm. I really really despise Motley Crue my hatred for people sometimes comes out as sort of intrigue because it's, it's one of those things where, like, if something frustrates you so much, you You're want to delve into it further. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm, it's like some form of, like, self, <clears throat> self-harm. Self-flagellation. <laughs> um, so Motley Crue have become my new sort of... Go-to uh, band. Chan- go-to band to channel all my disdain and uh, anger. Um, and from that, I've watched uh, an interview online whilst they were they were recording the music video for um looks that kill and they were speaking to nikki six and nikki six was basically like um yeah so the theme for the the shoot is it's not set in the past and it's not set in the future it's sort of like somewhere else and it could be like perceived as some sort of like post holocaust or whatever his, his, his holocaust or whatever this is uh this is becoming a reoccurring theme now yeah <laughs> and then he suddenly turns into fucking patrick stewart from the extras and he's like and there's like tons of women everywhere like, <laughs> and all their clothes fall off um and then um he said and then there's this there's this goddess and together we sort of make the looks that kill which means Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Whoever came up with that treatment should be fucking sacked. Um, I don't know. I think I'm probably going to give it a hard miss. 
I think if you should I, just if, watch it. Just if you if you have a, have a certain disposition like me, where you like to fuel your pissed offness. Yes, with yeah. I think once if I get to the end of the uh, if I get to the end of the office within this week, then uh, maybe I'll give it a go. Anyway, I guess we should probably get into the bulk of this week's episode. The bulk. The huge, vast bulk. The mulch. <laughs> Let's get into the mulch of it. So, so nineteen eighty nine. What a year. What a year. So we have the Berlin Wall coming down. Woo! Yeah, we've got the uh, death of <laughs> Japanese Emperor Hirohito. Woo! Yep. And uh, the first liver transplant. Really? If you needed that. Yeah, apparently. I didn't know that one. I mean, other than that, what, have we, what else have we got from that year? Well, it's the end of cons- uh, communism. Okay. Uh, there was the oh. NATO enlargement. Yep. Uh, this is one of my favourite uh, little facts, factual nuggets for you. Uh, Ayatollah uh, Khamenei issued a fatwa on Salman Rushdie. Oh, it came uh, out that, that year, didn't it? And then died. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like his like, last, um, last hurrah. And then it's just like, oh, fuck this. Do what you <laughs> <Whatever>. want. <laughs> um, the Velvet Revolution. Okay. Uh, Taylor Swift was born. Was she? Yeah. And with that, a which, star is born. Which, which gives oh. a... Compl- that's, that's Lady Gaga. Yeah. Um, which gives a completely different perspective to her album, 1989. It, it Did you not know sense. that that's why it was called that? <laughs> Jesus. That is a fantastic album as well. Yeah, We're going to have to amazing. cut that out with this. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was the highest grossing film. Okay, yeah. Uh, cinema Paradiso. Uh, was that the one? racist one? No, that was Temple of Doom, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. that was okay. very racist. racist. <laughs> yeah. But one of the biggest things uh, that happened in 89, especially for metal music, was uh, the Grammys uh, introduced the best hard rock heavy metal recording category. And uh, and they're still ongoing, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah, wasn't, yeah. Re- it wasn't unceremoniously retracted like it, the... Uh, I mean, it fucking should have been after 89. <laughs> the, uh, the Oscar, was it, new popular film or whatever it was. What was that? Did you not hear about that? Like last year they were going to introduce new popular film, which was essentially their excuse to put comic book films in the Oscars because oh, no one gave a shit. We, I... Do you really want to go there? No, we'll do, we'll so we'll do that for another time. time. And I really want to. I Tom's really want to. Yeah. Absolute hatred for everything pop culture. No, it's not pop culture. It's just. <laughs> com- I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to. I literally <laughs> don't want to do it right now. Um, so yeah, within the car- uh, category. Not like this. Not like this, please. Uh, within the category uh, for best hard rock and heavy metal recording uh, were uh, Jane's Addiction, mm-hmm. Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe ACDC uh, were in the category as well. Um, and then you've got Metallica. Who is shooing, surely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and finally, within that category, to complete the category, was um, a little-known uh, prog rock brand who, whom I bloody love, uh, Jethro Tull. Oh. Who I thought had been... Inactive is the wrong word, as definitely not within the zeitgeist of uh, pop culture of the time. Uh, I think it took Anchorman to uh, to bring it to bring them back to resuscitate. <laughs> flute solos, yeah. <laughs> um, so Alice Cooper, 
um, presented the award. Uh, he did a dummy run uh, during rehearsals um, during the day, which included a card um, with uh, sort of a card in an envelope, exactly like how it would be on the night. Uh, and he opened the card and there would be a name imprinted uh, on the card. Now, that name did not represent the winner of the night. And it wasn't supposed to, at least. Um, the name imprinted on the card is never usually the winner in those circumstances. They just put any other fucking name on there. And the card for the dummy run read Jethro Tull. Uh, who? What a fun in joke. Little did he know. They're not even the underdogs. They, they, they just shouldn't be there. Um, in fact, they they weren't there uh, for the uh, award ceremony itself. And I believe, from what uh, Ian Anderson said, is that uh, their label was so convinced that they weren't going to win the category that they didn't want to pay for them to fly out to LA to uh, accept an award that they weren't going to win. Um, That's just modesty and humility, isn't it? I mean, it's <laughs> very thrifty. Yeah, those are, those are good traits of Grammy Award winners for hard rock and metal performance. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, lo and behold, on the night, um, the, uh, during the ceremony, Alice Cooper comes up. Who is Alice? Um <laughs> He uh, announces the nominees and then announces the winner. He opens up the envelope. He looks down at the card and apparently he has to double take because the winner was not the bookie's favourite, Metallica, but it was, lo and behold, bloody good prog rock band, <laughs> wholesome prog rock band Jethro Tull. It just doesn't make any sense, does it? It really, well, really it doesn't. does, but it also doesn't. It really just, doesn't. And a lot of people, I think even Jethro Tull um, was surprised yeah. by by that. And Alice Cooper was like, am I reading this correctly? Yes, it is. It's Jethro Looks Tull. Looks to producers. Yeah, side like stage. Around, like, this is the dummy card. You've given me the dummy card. <laughs> Apparently Metallica were already standing up ready to accept. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> I mean, which is incredi- incredibly presumptuous yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, just like looking there, like walking up the stairs and then having to like do a 180 and turn back. Um, I think apparently... Kirk's oblivious, so he's still going up there. Yeah, yeah. James is still up there, pissed as a fire. <laughs> like, I'll take it anyway. But Alice Cooper had to accept the um, award on behalf of Jethro Tull. And um, on the topic of winning, Ian Anderson, the... Um, the front man of Jethro Tull, uh, said, Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, He said, um, uh, when people ask, why do you think you won? Because you need answers for something like this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he said, perhaps, and this is quite a, a um, quite a defensive answer. He said, well, perhaps we were five nice men who had never won a Grammy before. The voting members of uh, NARAS, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, if you needed to... Uh, no, that abbreviation in full. Um, decided we should receive a nomination. It's a peer group award from people in the industry, producers, musicians, record company professionals who give the award. It's not six panellists on the X Factor. 
What, so when that, was this quote? This, I think it's quite recent because oh, okay. it's the X Factor. I, mean, <laughs> I thought he was just some kind yeah, of seer that was looking into the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so Lars uh, has something to say. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, about it oh. as well. Um, he, had a, he had a number of things uh, to say, to be honest with you. They start off quite amenable, like he's quite accepting about it. And then we get into Lars territory. Okay, like, yeah. He, he, the brain starts, like the cogs start turning and then... Uh, they start tightening the screws. Uh, so Lars said, um, should I do his voice? Yeah. <laughs> Please. Some three weeks before the awards. What the fuck is that? <laughs> uh, some three weeks before the awards, uh, all those who are in touch, the critics, the day-to-day involved people, assume that Metallica <laughs> would walk away uh, with the award. It's easy for the in-touch people to think that. But remember that most of the Academy who vote for the nominees are in the age group of 40 to 60 and are very much less in tune with what goes on in the music scene. So... Passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive, not really accepting it, but sounding like he's conceding to the fact that they didn't win. Followed by, let's face it, they really (laughs) fucked up. Jethro Tull getting best hard rock heavy metal recording. I mean, come on! (laughs) He's not the most intimidating human being, though. He's not. Uh, No, in fact, he sounds intimidated. Yes. But I mean, it seems like following that, neither of the parties acted particularly well. Apparently, following that, Jethro Tull's record label took out a Billboard magazine advert, full page, might I add, which is a picture of a flute. And we all know that the flute is the staple of the Jethro Tull sound. Sure. With the slogan saying, the flute is a heavy, comma, metal instrument. Oh, so it's heavy. heavy it's physically heavy. heavy. It's not, though, is it? <laughs> so in fact, it's one of the lightest. Yeah, so in fact that they've, they've pretty much lied. They've lied to us. They've lied to the Grammys. Oh, my God. I never thought about it like that. However, of course, there was a retort from Metallica who came back with a sticker. You know, yeah, you get the stickers of from the band who released blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, Producer yeah. of blah, 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 blah. They just said, and on Justice for All, they had a sticker reading Grammy Award Losers. Just fucking losers. And that is, of course, in capitals. That was the only way that I could... So it's a bit like Al Gore saying, I'm Al Gore, I was the president of the United States, followed by much, much (laughs) rapturous laughter in uh, Inconvenient Truth. Yeah. So what we can take away from this is Metallica are the Al Gore of the medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess we should start talking about some records that came out. Yeah, so we've cultivated a, uh, a few records that we kind of, not necessarily the best records of that year. No. Um, not necessarily the most influential, but ones that we think definitely deserve a look in because probably not that many people, whilst they might be aware of the band, they might not be aware of this particular record, one in particular with me. Um, so my first record is a band called Repulsion. Um, who are a grindcore band uh, from Flint, Michigan. Um, so have you had any, have you had a run with this album before? Or? 
Yeah, so uh, it's not a record that I listen to uh, on repeat or anything like that. Mm. Um, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to it a few times, but I, from me, with the sort of minimum sort of time I've had with it, um, and from what I know about Repulsion, is that um, they were sort of intrinsic in merging hardcore audiences with metal audiences, mm. which is quite a difficult thing. And I don't know we could talk about crossover um, another time, but there was something about Repulsion where they were like wholly accepted by both communities, which I think nearing the, t like in late 80s was, was more rare. Or maybe the elitism came sort of after that, but there was something about Repulsion as a band. I, I deeply respect them for what they mm. did for both metal and more specifically hardcore punk music. Yeah, so they're, the well the record in question is called Horrified and obviously it came out in 1989. Oh, did it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough. But uh but the reason why I, why I bring up the fact that it came out in 1989 is because this band are the Ross and Rachel of death metal, grindcore, hardcore punk because they are on and off again. <laughs> throughout the entirety of the run-up to this album. So they actually started in 1984 um, and they released... Uh, they re Well, they re uh, tried to record a demo in 1986, uh, which I believe was called Slaughter of the Innocent. But they didn't actually release this album until 1989 because they were on and off again. Uh, two of the members um, actually ended up leaving... Uh, to, I think it was, uh, who we got here? So it's Scott Carson, mm -hmm. who's the vocalist and bassist, and Matt Olivio, who was the other guitarist. So they started in 84, uh, recorded this um, demo EP, mm -hmm. Slaughter of the Innocents, in, two, uh, sorry, 1986. Um, and then in between that time, they actually ended up buggering off to Florida to go join the band Death, Death yeah. with uh, Chuck Schuldiner. Um, however, that didn't work out because they made a swift exit within the same year and returned back to Flint, Michigan. And they cite it as creative differences. Right. But to be honest, having listened to the vast majority of Death's back catalogue and also Repulsion's one album they put out... I think they're slightly on different leagues in term of, in terms of technical proficiency. Right. Um, so basically, what you're trying to say, say in a roundabout way is that uh, the members of Repulsion were not good enough I to just be in death. Don't think they were there. I don't think they met the mark. But luckily, they did come back because this record was released following that. Yeah. Um, and then. They broke up again shortly after in the same year in 1989. So, I mean, I'm, I've been a big fan of, of Grindcore for, I don't know, I guess I guess I probably listened to things like Scum by Napalm Death. Mm -hmm. Probably got that record when I was like 14, maybe. Um, and there's a big difference between this and say some more of the European scene where it still feels like there's a heavier emphasis on 
the more punk side of stuff, especially in terms of the delivery of it. Mm. So with Repulsion, it feels more like when I listen to the vocals, they're not that lower kind of guttural thing that uh, th that you would get from early Napalm Death and uh, other other bands such as like Bolt Thrower when they first started. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it has more like a, a void kind of feel to it, like that kind of sneering punk but it's still and it's not so much grindy as in with the blast beats it's it's more of a kind of a dbt kind of discharge mm. disclosed kind of feel to it i think it's it's amazing how many uh acts especially um like pinnacle death metal bands um like when you if you, you call back to any of the classic death metal acts how many of them sort of what they were trying to do was separate themselves from thrash mm. and they were looking more towards the punk scene like bands like discharge bands like crass almost as well and things like that it just seemed to have more it seemed to speak to them more it felt more dangerous certainly yeah. like i think that around that era uh, around that late 80s era i think it was probably feeling quite tame um especially well, i think thrash was starting to become quite commercial because of bands like metallica and slayer yeah i mean and justice for all came out the year before and that's when metallica were kind of introduced to the wider mainstream via like well they had their first music video which was one yeah um so yeah Amazing. so it was yeah it was probably feeling slightly toothless at that point so i can imagine that they were looking at the the punk scene and very much like the uk punk scene as well but also but, i think they were they were looking to uh dc yeah like they were looking at black flag they were looking at minor threat and bad brains and seeing what they were doing and also seeing that convergence of genres especially with bands like bad brains where they thought well if we, we could probably set up something completely different here yeah and i mean it's difficult not to bring something like siege into the fold yeah. even though they are quite uh, i mean they're like they're they're album drop dead was 1981 i think so it'd been going for quite some time but the, the the thing that's kind of exceptional about repulsion is probably the lyrical content so with them it's all about horror movies and gore and to be honest i'm probably not actually that keen on that kind of lyrical content like i do tend to skew more towards like a napalm death so you're not Something. into like day aside and stuff. <sighs> yeah, but I think okay. it's probably within the context of the band. So if it's something that has that more punk edge, to not have that kind of mm. indignation behind it, just it doesn't it doesn't hold as well together. And yeah, but I mean, and they were kind of I guess they were one of the first bands to kind of bring that into the kind of grindcore scene. I mean that that had already been apparent in the death metal scene yeah. um it's difficult to ignore the amount of influence that they had i mean especially with the bands that ended up going on to cover them and in fact probably people that they regard as their peers so napalm death ended up covering maggots in your coffin um you had bands like mortician who are probably the prime example of those kind of lyrics, they covered the title track Horrified, and then mm -hmm. you've got Go Killer, who did The Stench of Burning Death. Um, and then it's also worth mentioning, mentioning the fact that Entombed, 
um, covered the song Black Breath, which actually has a knock-on effect because the band Black Breath, who I don't know where they've gone in recent years, they were an absolutely fantastic band and seem to have disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, but they took their name from that track and took all their riffs from Entombed. <laughs> well, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a punishing listen. Um, I don't think I'd recommend it to everyone. How long is it? So it is, I mean, that's the thing is, with, with, a, with a record like that in which, the, you know, like if variety be the spice of life, oh that, is, that, that is not the case with this record. Because if you've heard the first five tracks, you've probably heard the entire record beginning to end. Yeah. And it is a 30-minute record. So it does become... Uh, it does become slightly taxing after a while, but I think to yeah, I think to I think to not appreciate it for for what it is um, and kind of understand it in the vocabulary of that kind of music, I think is is a disservice to the genre. So what are you saying that it's too I'm saying long. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying that it's way too long, um, <laughs> but they do fill that gap for me, between something that's far more aggressive, such as uh, such as Napalm Death, and then yeah. going into the more punk kind of elements, such as Discharge. Like, they seem to fall quite nicely into that. Pretty crusty. Yeah, pretty crusty, but not a lot of crustiness in terms of the imagery to kind of back no, it up. No, um, of This kind of grindcore... Everything got amped up, and now it's like that. At that point, it was a lot more about the aggression, and there was a certain kind of sloppiness to their, to their production and to the playing itself. Um, but whereas when you hit stuff like Azuk, and it's just so tight and mm -hmm. so on the mark, and almost to the point in which it's kind of given itself a full identity as grindcore. Because I remember when I first started getting into grindcore and I was getting into crust, it was difficult for me to kind of differ differentiate between a few genres. Yeah. But now it's, it's a lot more easy to kind of, not necessarily pigeonhole, but at least identify those genres. But, I mean, they're still going. They got back together. Um, they're actually playing a scene extreme festival. Right. Um, in Czech Republic, which actually the lineup looks great. And if I could afford it and stand being in a field with crusties for three days, oh, I'd probably mate. enjoy. That's but um That's below the static no, belt. It's fine, yeah. <laughs> the bullet belt. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I mean good luck to them. They've managed to Bloody good luck to them. Yeah, they've managed to build a thirty year career off releasing one album, followed by maybe like a couple of EPs, but nothing that's actually that's substantial. The dream. Like that yeah, is the dream, isn't they're it? They're just milking it. Yeah, they yeah. really are milking it. Yeah. Pestilence. Mm. Consuming impulse. Fantastic record. I think a classic uh, for very just reasons. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Pestilence aren't a band that were particularly on my radar that much. So I'm hoping that you can give me some insight. Um, I am definitely going to check this out afterwards. 
probably should have checked it out before. But no, no, let's 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 address the uh, the elephant in the room <laughs> that is our professionalism with this podcast. <laughs> to which I started having a freak out, going, "I've got too much to look up. I've got too much to look up." And I was like, yeah. "I'm just not even going to touch your stuff." So it's you're going to have to educate me on um, certain things. So yeah, you, this is a journey. Uh, it was recorded at uh, Music Lab in Berlin. Uh, it was uh, originally released on RC Records, originally on tape, and then um, Road Racer uh, released it on vinyl um, just slightly late, like a couple of months or, some, or so late, uh, later than that. So Road Racer is um, Road Runner Records. Mm. Uh, do you know why they were called Road Racer first? No, they are me. Because of a lawsuit with uh, the actual Road Runner. As animation, in, really? Yeah. Uh, so they thought that they'd um, swerve uh, any great lawsuit, which we, which they would most. Who's that? Warner lose. Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, they would have sued them. <laughs> they would have sued, sued them out <laughs> the asses. So um, yeah. So until the lawsuit, until until it was all agreed and everything was um, finalized, they had to call themselves Road Racer, and now they are. Uh, called the name that they um, still ordain today, which is Roadrunner uh, Records, which is quite interesting. Um, Who've now branched out slightly. They're doing comedy albums and Doug Stanhope is on there. Like, I don't even know who's still signed to Roadrunner because I know that Glassjaw no. had a big, like, real falling out with that record label. I think that's the common trend with a lot of... Um, these bands on uh, records like Roadrunner, uh, records like Earache, is that you anticipate the uh, founders of these labels to be sort of uh, akin with the creativity and the creative output of the bands that they represent. Mm. You think everyone would be on sort of equal ground with each other. With Pestilence, uh, like they were, they were originally they were released on that small death metal label RC, and they were still called Road Racer. So there was still a very much a, a young label. They might have had uh, aspirations and ideas above their station, but you didn't think you wouldn't assume them to be money men and businessmen from the off, mm. especially when they're releasing death metal music. Yeah. So it's, it's a strange dichotomy there between creativity and money um anyway uh consuming impulse was uh, uh produced by uh harris johns who uh was also involved with voivod production killing technology and creator also interestingly enough um there's been a few ties between records for this episode but he also produced um one of the records that i'm going to be talking about shortly after this yeah, so. don't 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 uh don't, jump don't ahead. reveal it now no. just just in case someone might guess. So Pestilence, formed by uh, Patrick Mamelli on guitar and bass. Uh, Patrick Utovic uh, on guitar. Uh, well done. They, thank you. Uh, Martin Van Drunen was recru- uh, recruited for vocals uh, for uh, Consuming Impulse. Um, Marco Fodis on drums. I believe they all shared um, songwriting um, credits for consuming impulse as well and i think you can really differentiate between the members as to who wrote what (laughs) the whole thing which i'll get into in a little bit uh so 
And one of the most interesting uh, aspects of consuming impulse isn't actually the music, but it's the uh, artwork for the album Consuming Impulse, which is now a classic. Yeah. I mean, on first glance, it's not the most attractive album cover. Yeah, and we don't mean that in a, oh, in so brutal, it's disgusting. Yeah, as in just, it's just pretty poor. Yeah. So the original um, cover art um, that was uh, commissioned by the band and sent over to uh, Road Racer was uh, it depicted a group of people eating each other, consuming each other. And then at the last minute before the release, without the band's permission, Road Racer or Road Runner, uh, it replaced the image uh, with what we see today, which is uh, the image of a uh, close-up of a man's face screaming uh, with ants slowly... Fire ants, by the way. Fire ants apparently consuming him. Uh, and ants don't really consume <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, neither of those covers look particularly the original cover art is slightly it's not great no um uh it shows women and like eating each other and savages apparently from what it seems like just slowly consuming one another it's not a particularly offensive no image the original cover artwork uh especially i mean Roadrunner Records. So, did they actually request it to be changed then? Yeah. So, well, Out they of didn't poor request taste it. or poor. No, they they didn't um, notify Pestilence that they were going to change the artwork. Mm-hmm. Pestilence found out once right. the album had been released. So they didn't even commission it. No, no, they didn't. They didn't agree with uh, any changes to the artwork. Uh, and then there was a lot of to and froing with the band and the label afterwards because Pestilence, I think quite rightly, were very shocked to see their album on the stands without the artwork that they um, originally commissioned to Road Racer. Um, and it is quite, kind of weird because Road Racer got in touch with the band post-album release and said it was too aggressive, too brutal for an American audience, which is bizarre for one, because Pestilence aren't really aiming to appeal to a wide audience anyway mm. in their sound. I think that's quite indicative of the music that they create. Um, and also um, Road Racer in 1986, so three years before Consuming Impulse was released, uh, they released an Angel Witch uh, record, self-titled, which depicts sort of a naked woman with an obscured face wielding a knife, which to me, at least, seems a little bit more controversial than that of an animated, sort of cartoonish-looking artwork that shows people eating each other. So it's a little bit strange. And then... Later, in about 1992, Roadrunner, which I, I believe it was called by that point, they released that typo negative record with um, <sighs> Peter Steele's uh, anal sphincter on the front of it. 
So like, there's but a little bit. Of, yeah, there's a bit of a paradox there, isn't there? I mean, like, I'm just trying to think of other instances in which like a record label was kind of stepped in and said, absolutely not. And the only one that kind of comes to my mind, like from the get-go, is probably Mediocre Generica by mm. Leftover Crack. Because, I mean, originally it was going to be called, um, I think the album was going to be called Kill the, is it Shoot the Kids in School? Or Kill the Kids in School? But obviously because America is fucking mental. Yeah. And that shit is going on. Quite often. Um, and who was that? That was Hellcat who put that out. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, is, uh, isn't that so Tim, Tim Armstrong? Armstrong is yeah. Really so good. Tim Armstrong was a little bitch and uh, flaked out. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Can you say that? It's all right. Bitch? I'm going. Well, if Dave, I'm gonna call if you I made Dave from Corn can call Fieldy a little bitch, then I can call That doesn't make him a good person. No, well, neither am I. So let's I just steam like... ahead. Um, but yeah, so they, they have ended up stepping in and changed it. Well, forced them to change their album title. And after that, Leftover Crack migrated to Fat Wreck, wasn't it? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then following that, they did Fuck World Trade, which had a picture of Tony Blair and George Bush pouring... Topical. Yeah, pouring petrol on top of the, uh, World Trade Center. So... <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not subtle yeah isn't it? do you think this was just like a piece of like leftover artwork from one of their mates he was the, doing a doodle in the back what the was, original or yeah, it the, was the, no the new one the new one the only thing that is known of the new one is that do you know who did it graphic artist called squeal right okay that's it yeah that uh, says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. I tried to do a Nard one and find out more about Squeal, but there doesn't seem to be a great deal of information available mm. uh, online about Squeal. Mm. Ironically, the artwork has become a bit of a uh, staple um, image uh, in the, the death metal scene. So uh, onto, the, onto the music itself. Um, Pestilence were always the band striving to be the European answer to death mm. and infernal majesty to a certain extent as well, which to me, especially during their younger career. So I think they formed in about 86 and they had um, uh, one record before con consuming impulse. Um, and they were always trying to sound like other acts. It was only later in their career where they really forged a pestilence sound and also their, relationship with the label dictated the creative output of pestilence to a certain degree from which uh in their album spheres which was i believe the last record they released on road uh runner records i think it was in 96 could be so wrong there <laughs> um it has influences of free jazz and it has all these other elements that have been like just thrown into that record and it completely changed the sound. Roadrunner despised it and dropped them straight away, which was almost their intent in the mm. first place for Pestilence. So there was always this tumultuous relationship with the label that they were on, especially with the changing of the artwork and things like that for consuming impulse. Um, I mean, that would be a kind of nail in the coffin, wouldn't it, for... For many bands. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but they continue to release music today. Uh, uh, and it's actually all really of a 
a certain standard, like a very, very strong standard, the music that they're releasing today. So um, you should definitely check them out um, throughout their career anyway. But um, yeah, the uh, Consuming Impulse, more specifically, it does sound like sort of death um, B-side tracks, almost like not demo death tracks, but like there is an element of it that's like, okay, they want to sound like death or they probably had a, a meeting just before and say, okay, we want to sound like death. How can we achieve that in a record? Uh, and the record itself is very dirty in terms of the production values and things like that. Uh, and I, th I believe it was in, uh, intentional for the, the sound uh, of consuming impulse to sound that sort of dirty, almost crusty, uh, was almost intentional by the band themselves. What they did was um, they had an idea, Patrick specifically said he had an idea to make it sound really dirty and it hadn't been done before. Um, they put a flanger over both guitars, uh, both guitar signals throughout the whole album. So it sounds like a plane taking off. Yeah, so, and it does, and it sort of, he said it was completely unheard of to do something like that at the time. Uh, for probably, good reason. <laughs> yeah, for good reason. And it probably hasn't been repeated that much ever since. Um, and he said, the sound is all over the album. It's not too dominant there, but it makes the album sound really, really dirty, which is what it does. Um, anyway, Martin uh, Van Drunen, he left the band after the release to join um, Asphyx. Um and the band members actually accused Junior of being unprofessional on stage during consuming impulse tours. Uh, he said they said he was an alcoholic and that he was very arrogant. Uh, to which Van Drunen like vehemently denies that. Um, and what's funny about Van Drunen's performance throughout consuming impulse is that his vocal inflection um, is. Um, is, is classic now, like that sound, that very guttural sound that you had. But the vocal inflection was actually more of a practical solution to um, the exhaustive pace of their debut, the Malleus... Maleficarum. Maleficarum. Hammer of the much. Witches. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, according to Van Drunen, is that he literally couldn't keep up with that uh, in live performances, so he changed his vocal inflection for Consuming Impulse, and I think it definitely shows throughout uh, that record. Um, another little tidbit, which I think is quite funny, is that um, the band had to buy copies of the record from Roadrunner for friends and family. Wow. They were given one. You say that, but I have been in a band previously that has had to buy records off their own record label just to actually have some for personal possession. It's unbelievable. Which is craziness. Capitalism, Capitalism at, it, at its best. <laughs> um, a seminal record. Absolutely. So moving on, um, and I think it's probably good to go into this one because of the ties that it has to your previous record, okay, um, is Sodom and the album Agent Orange. Um, so for anyone who isn't aware of Sodom, Sodom were a, uh, well, still are a fresh band from Germany. However, they didn't start that way. Um, what, as German? No. <laughs> Germania, we learned about that this week from um, 
Ramstein. from our friends Ramstein. So, so yeah, so Agent Orange, um, they are sometimes referred to as part of the big four of Teutonic thrash metal, um, which includes Creator, Destruction and Tankard. But I would probably go so far as to trade out one of the big, big Actual four for right. Sodom. Which like ones? I mean, that's difficult. And I think that we sh- it should probably be a uh, topic that we cover in a later episode. Reinventing. It's isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I don't know whether it is because when I was younger, I absolutely loved me some Megadeth. Um, but going back, they've only got about two pushing maybe three good records like that are definitively good records other than that you know if you took away the big four accolade from mustaine mm. he'd, he'd have take, nothing he'd be taking away his whole his whole life source you've seen him he's just crying away on uh, <laughs> some kind of monster yeah but um so yeah so it was recorded in east berlin um also by harris johns who um did the pestilence record uh so this is their third album i believe um so previously before that in 1987 um they had persecution mania and this record agent orange is kind of more where they sided with fresh metal so previously they got a lot of flack from people uh, being described as a second-rate Venom. Um, to be honest, I think Venom are a second-rate Venom, Venom. now. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they essentially changed up their sound quite quite dramatically in terms of how they presented themselves aesthetically, uh, the style of music that they were playing, and also the lyrical content. Um, so this record uh, is the second record actually that featured um frank blackfire on guitar uh who shortly after this actually left to join creator um the rest of the band is made up by tom angel ripper who's on vocals and bass and chris witch hunter who Mm -hmm. is the who played drums on the record what's interesting is the fact that it is just a three-piece band and that is something that's not reflected in the sound like this is a very loud dense sounding record um it's not a particularly like if you take something like the year before like and justice for all which has that quite operatic sound mm-hmm. on a few of their tracks this is not the case like this is a case that comes straight out the gate and it does absolutely rip i mean for me if you're going to be a fresh band and you're not thrashing within the first couple of tracks and there's something absolutely wrong with it and that first track as well yeah i mean it's an absolute stormer yeah um so did they i don't know if you know this but did they use overdubs when mixing it or did they was it just loud? There is no way that they couldn't have. Like, there is a lot of guitar work going on. Right. Um, and I think that that is down to Frank Blackfire. Like, he completely reinvented it. Like, even if you look at the older records, like, they were relying more on that kind of lower fi Like, if you listen to some of their earlier demos, um, even, even the artwork, it's very, like, black and white, obviously just doodled on a piece of paper and then folded around a cassette tape yeah um 
And that's another thing that's worth bearing in mind with this record is how amazing the artwork looks for it. So the artwork is um, by Andreas Marshall, uh, who's done a fair body of work, actually. And this artwork is definitely something to write home about because it is absolutely stunning to look at. And it definitely reflects the kind of change in pace that they did with the vocals. So previously they were addressing like a cult subject matter. Um, And then apparently Angel Ripper became absolutely obsessed with the Vietnam War. Um, which obviously goes into the fact that the record itself is called Agent Orange. Um, However, it is also worth noting that not all the lyrics are about the Vietnam War. And if we might digress, I can bring to your attention a song that features on that record called Incest. Please do. Right. So it starts off... Score to find new ways of love, denounce moralizers, ethic without prohibition and laws, give no credence to church. All right. Uh, satisfaction in the sign of crime. So he acknowledges that it's a crime, but he's right. still plowing ahead, plowing, being the word. Yeah. The new meaning of my life, there is no sin all down the line, no repentance, pay the price. And you're like, okay, so it's relatively yeah. ambiguous he also knows right now. the cost of uh, incest as well absolutely but we guess a little bit more heated now so number one in the list of misdeeds persuade my sister so she is it consent is she yeah, she, is she fully on board yeah she has to be persuaded right he's got the gift of the... <laughs> uh she shook and grasped i'm not reading that <laughs> <laughs> turned by mutual whisper wrapped up in bewitched body shower Forbidden fruits like taste better. Head and shoulders. I have no idea. But apparently, so I read a couple of interviews with... Um, the sister. Well, no, yeah, she, she barely talked. A couple of talking heads. Uh, yeah. No, I read an interview with uh, Tom Angel Ripper about his lyrical content and also just the lyrics in general in terms of how they sound. Because having read quite a lot of the lyrics, they don't make a huge amount of sense. Um, and apparently he does write in German... Um, and then has a friend who's an English teacher uh, review them and change them. And I'm just wondering whether, I assume his English, he has a lot better grasp of the English language now than he did in 1989. I mean, we've all got Google Translate. But whether it was even more horrific to begin with, and (laughs) and this English teacher kind of, took the brunt of it and then reviewed it and went, yeah, this is this is verbatim what you wrote previously. And you went, oh, yeah, good. That's, I mean, has, I mean, the first time she heard that song, I wonder what she felt. It was probably his sister. Yeah. <laughs> you done with that Moving one? Moving on. Okay, cool. I think of all the records that we're talking about today, this one might be... Oh. I feel like I want to say the best, but I don't think I can say the best. Um, Bolt Thrower, Realm of Chaos, uh, also known as Bolt Thrower, Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness. Uh, I, I think it's a fantastic record. You do sort of have to give some concessions to um, not so much the production, but the 
the drumming. Let's 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 just address the uh, elephant in the room. Is that the blast beats on this record aren't entirely <laughs> in line with the metronome? Not the no. fact that they use the metronome in the first place. If you admit that from um, the listening process of uh, the album itself, it's an absolutely incredible album. Like it is full to the absolute brim with riffs. And some of them are their most popular riffs. I mean, they're, they're a very prolific band, Bolt Thriller. And um, some of those riffs from Realm of Chaos still set it off today uh, at their shows. Like people are screaming for World Eater. Um, and I think we've been to a couple of hardcore shows where <clears throat> a lot of the hardcore acts um, would even start a set with something like World Eater just to get people uh, excited Mm. Uh, for them which is also kind of um similar to what we've been talking about indicative between that convergence between hardcore punk the crust scene grindcore and um death metal and i think bolt thrower are a fantastic umbrella band uh for all those different styles um so uh, a little bit of uh context on the record uh it was the second album uh by bolt thrower it was recorded at Loco Studios in uh, April of 1989 uh, and engineered by uh, Tim Lewis. Uh, more importantly, uh, it was produced by Bolt Thrower, but also uh, Digby uh, Pearson, who is one of the co-founders of Earache Records, um, which Bolt Thrower were um, part of the roster uh, of. Um, and Digby Pearson had a... F- Fucking amazing, 1989, I must say. Uh, he aided in the production, or sort of exec produced, again, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> uh, he aided in the production of, uh, in 1989 alone, of Carcass, Symphonies of Sickness. And he was the exec producer for uh, Morbid Angels, Altars of Madness, and Napalm Death, uh, all within the same year of 1989. So he had a fucking amazing... Uh, yeah, that guy. Uh, the cover uh, artwork for Realm of Chaos, once again, is a bit of a contentious topic. Uh, it was produced by Games Workshop, as were the band's name, and the majority of the origins of Bolt Thrower sort of stem from Games Workshop. Uh, it's closely tied with Warhammer, uh, 40,000 and... Um, Realm of Chaos, Slaves to Darkness was the title of a gaming book uh, that was released in 1988 by Games Workshop. Um, It was released on Earache. Uh, In 2005, a a reissue was released by Earache uh, featuring new uh, artwork, um, which which I will get into in just a minute. Uh, the, The band itself actually advises not to buy the reissue uh, as they're falling out yeah they've yeah. not been involved and they do not get any royalties um they are not involved and they will not get any uh, royalties so on the artwork joe from the band said games workshop approached us after the boss had heard one of our peel sessions a john peel session and uh it was actually games workshop who originally wanted to release realm of chaos 
Yeah, they, they want to release yeah. a record. Well, what I found out was that Games Workshop, um, I think the uh, head office of Games Workshop was a few doors down from Earache Records. And obviously by, by showing their um, appreciation for uh, death metal by listening to John Peel sessions with Bolt Thrower, they actually, I think the one of the uh, managers of Games Workshop at the time wanted to set up a label. I think it was called Warhammer records or something like that mm. and one of the bands that they wanted on the the roster was bolt thrower and i think there was a bit of to and froing and i think for a while they were actually leaning more towards going towards that label um until earache sort of came into the fore and they discussed and they probably they agreed to uh signing to earache because obviously it's an established label they had a huge backing and more probably could have come out of working with uh, Earache at the time. At least that was the notion at the time of the release. Um, so Joe said, we felt the distri distribution would be a lot better through Earache. So we ended up just using their artwork. Um, they had to pay a lot of money to use the artwork. And there were a lot of rules over the copyright and the territories where it was used, um, but they ended up with the logo that they still use today. And um, so here, here's where things get a little bit hairy with Bolt Thrower, with Earache, and with Games Workshop. Uh, I don't want to go into the legality of copyright laws uh, by any stretch, because I don't fucking know them. Um, <laughs> But there was an agreement between Games Workshop and Bolt Thrower to release their record with the original artwork. Um, and at shows, this is amazing, um, Bolt Thrower were obliged or obligated to, um, they could sell the record. But in tow with the record, they also had to try and promote Games Workshop and Warhammer. And There's they used no... to sell Warhammer products at oh, Bolt no. Thrower shows. There's yeah. no reputable way of doing that. No, like, no, definitely not. And this is like, are they the only band that have had this closer tie with there Games was, Workshop? I think there was another band, like a Games Workshop band, mm. uh, but nowhere near the gravitas of Ultra. Do, do the lyrics reflect the. It's all about war. Yeah, it's all yeah. about like that 40k um, content and. Yeah. Um, that's why Bolt Thrower were for quite some time umming and erring whether to actually just sign to this newfangled Warhammer label. Um, and it is it is a topic, obviously, that is intrinsic throughout Bolt Thrower's career, but not as physically, um, not as manifest as in Realm of Chaos. I think Realm of Chaos was just a games workshop record. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Earache's response to what happened uh, after the agreement had um, come to pass uh, and after the um, copyright had 
expired for the band and earache so games workshop still held um ownership i believe of the original artwork who i think was by night it's called uh, john blanche or something like that um earache faced a very harsh decision to either discontinue the album or commission new art by the same artist in a similar style and theme but they were trying to be careful not to fall foul of copyright laws at the time as well um they said bolt thrower themselves were pretty unhelpful uh, by insisting that the original uh, be used in further pressings but this was impossible as it wasn't ours or their art to use it was games workshops artwork and copyrights it was it was stuck between a rock and a hard place really for bolt thrower and earache and things like that so yeah it's it's a bolt thrower were not happy about any of this um they wanted the to keep the original artwork they couldn't um there was a solution which meant that realm of chaos could still be printed but bolt thrower wouldn't be receiving any of the royalties in that respect either because they didn't have, own any uh, uh have any ownership of the record in itself so what do you do what do you do in that sort of situation you either permit your creative output to be listened and consumed, but you're not earning anything from it. Mm. And this record, I think, sold about 50,000 uh, worldwide. Which so is a pretty impressive number for... Yeah, for uh, a Midlands grind. From Coventry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, bands like... I mean, have you been to Coventry? Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't, actually. I have. I've played in Coventry. How's that? And, uh, well... It was not a particularly amazing show. Um, however, I think I probably came to the most depressing pub afterwards. So right next to the venue, we played at somewhere called The Phoenix. Right next to it was this pub that stayed open. I'm pretty sure it was 24 hours, but it might have been just until like 7 o'clock in the morning. However, I did end up going to the toilet at that time. Uh at three o'clock in the morning yeah and the only way that i can describe it is it was like willy wonka's chocolate factory but the umpa lumpers had been radicalized and their main point of attack was that chocolate river and it was <laughs> everywhere Jesus. like it was everywhere and there was some poor guy who's who obviously it happens quite often because there was some guy who was employed to just stand there and clean up after people oh like God. babies. Yeah. And I saw him muttering to himself as he was doing it. And all I had was just the Rec Room for a Dream soundtrack just playing on loop in my head. Fucking hell. And it was horrendous. Yeah. Coventry, you're full of scum. No, I don't. Whoa. Uh, no, I love you. Did you hear that click? Yeah. That's everyone unsubscribing from Coventry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So. Sold 50,000 records worldwide, and I don't think bands like Sacrilege um, or Discharge or anything like that probably have ever sold no, 50,000. Nowhere near. No, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a huge feat for an incredible album. One, once again, marred in controversy over ownership and over artwork. And does it sour the music? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> we all got over it they got yeah, over i it also ha i also own the post 2004 realm of chaos 
record. So you did uh, exactly what they told you not to do. One hundred percent. Just that's what Blogspot's there for. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So um, the last one officially uh, for me mm. is um, Godflesh Street Cleaner. So yeah, I think um, Earache were having a very stellar, very strong nineteen eighty nine. I mean, Morbid Angel. Pulp thrower and uh, Godflesh, uh, Street Cleaner, um, which in my opinion probably is their best record. It might not be my favourite, but I think it is their best record. The tone is just unreal. It sounds so heavily processed, but it's almost to the point of stylism, like stylistically. Yeah. It is like, it is, it's not the fact that the technology that they were using let them down um it feels like everything's very very considered and i wouldn't expect anything else from justin broderick before street cleaner uh flesh were uh, originally called uh fall of because um and they the the impetus of Godflesh was there but it wasn't until the the name Godflesh came into fruition that the real Godflesh sound came out, if that makes mm. sense. Um, and it was primarily due to listening to a lot of noise acts uh, from America. Uh, and especially with like very early swans and that sort of anarchic, shambolic um, precision that they had uh, that, Justin really wanted to sort of bring into the fore with Fall of Because. He would sub- subsequently become uh, Godflesh. Uh, the name Street Cleaner itself uh, may have originated from the band White House. Okay. Um, it's one of um, Justin's influences. Mm. Um, so A kind on, of power electronics. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's on their Right to Kill album, they have a song called uh, The Street Cleaner which might have influenced them uh, to choose that for their first full-length title, mm. really. Uh, so this is a nice little tie-in there, a nice little reference. Um, it was recorded in three sessions, and it was said, uh, shared between uh, Soundcheck Studios in Birmingham and Square Dance in Derby. Um, and it's Rolling Stone's 64th best metal album of all time. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like... Is that It's quite true? clinical. Because I think that Sodom was the 63rd. Really? Yeah. Oh, competition. I mean, that is... There's been a lot of coincidence, coincidences coming in this yeah. episode. I'm going to try and rephrase that. <sighs> there's been a lot of coincidences. Oh, fuck's sake. Fuck it. No. God. How can I not say that word? <laughs> is that right, what you were saying? Uh, let me just have a check. So Rolling Stones. No, yeah, I'll accept your GDPR privacy policy. Uh, so what did you say? 64? 64th. 64th. Yeah, 64 is Godflesh Street Cleaner. 63? 63rd, 63rd is uh, Sodom by, uh, is Agent Orange by Sodom. So Do you agree you with go. that? I don't know. I'm going to go with Godflesh. Yeah, I'm probably going to go with Godflesh as well. As actually. the 63rd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not getting any higher than that. They're not getting past they're not getting past sleep. 
They're not getting past sleep. No, oh, I think six second Jerusalem sleep, sixty one mm. converged Jane Doe. Anyway, we don't need to go. Any we don't need to go. Any One of the primary reasons as to why it's my f- the best uh, Godflesh album is it came at a time of once again as we, what we've been talking about throughout this episode is the convergence of different scenes. Uh, coming together and there is a product uh, at the end of it so with pestilence or with repulsion it would be hardcore and grindcore metal death metal etc etc what's interesting about street cleaner is its huge influence uh, from early electronic music and sort of a there's more of an inception of hip-hop coming out of um, the mid to late 80s which is just plastered all over street cleaner it might not be um direct or in your face uh any of those influences like personally i would say street cleaner uh has more akin with artists like jeff mills or Derek may part of uh, the detroit house scene um than it does say with other acts on earache Mm. So like Morbid Angel and uh, Napalm Death and bands like that. Um, and the hip-hop influence, I think, is really, really prominent. Um, and obviously, it's something that Justin explores later in his career with J.K. Flesh and with Techno Animal, with Kevin Martin. Uh, but I love the fact that... The, the subtlety of those influences in this record. I mean, apparently, um, Christbait rising uh which also has a music video for it apparently um i've never seen that no i don't think i haven't seen that uh is a form of tribute to uh, eric b and rakeem uh, microphone fiend um and again it might not be a, an overt reference but it doesn't need to be because the inference is there and that's what i love about street cleaner as a whole is that it emulates things um with such light precision mm. despite being such a fucking heavy and gross album and an angry album it's yeah. so so angry i think uh justin broderick um has said it was like his most aggressive record mm. he was lashing out at anything and everything um and he didn't care and it really does come out on this record and i absolutely love it uh, but it's the emulation of hip-hop of techno of sort of proto power electronics which once again um he returns to later in his career and he works with dominic ferno of hospital uh productions as well prurient uh fame so it's all there and i absolutely love this record specifically for that convergence of cultures coming out and it being such a subtle record considering how heavy it is um and just to wrap up uh like we i think we might have mentioned that these aren't the only records as far as our notes suggest mm. these aren't the only records that released in 1989 no absolutely not so um, there were others um but these are the ones that we've highlighted put on a pedestal um and very very quickly i thought it was quite interesting considering it is an episode on 1989 change was most certainly in the air 
for some <laughs> bands. <laughs> um, one of those bands was Dark Throne. Mm. Um, but just to close up here on 1989, uh, I found a review. Now, I'm not defaming the, the author Okay. this review I, I don't want to come across as a bully but fuck me this is hilarious well you know that this is going to be committed to the internet and can be for sure, uh, lodged yeah. as evidence cancel for defamation me. of give character a fuck. cancel me yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so uh, I found this it's almost like TripAdvisor-esque review and I think it's of um, Full Kandra which is um, just to reiterate a fucking demo alright mm. so <laughs> relax this guy, who really, I must admit, has such a way with words. He's able to describe things in a way I don't think I've ever been able to achieve in my own <laughs> writing. Uh, so uh, we'll keep the author anonymous, okay. uh, mainly because I think he kept it, or she kept it anonymous as well. Where everyone's got an opinion yeah. on the internet. Please right? edit that out, Matt. I don't really <laughs> want to add that in there. So um, uh, this is a review of Thulkandra. I'll, okay. I'll keep it short and sweet. Uh, this is my first real foray into Dark Throne. I've tried before, but I thought it was just Blair. Now, <laughs> now I've started with this demo, and I liked it, in brackets. Not love it. It's more than okay, but not really great. So he then goes on to... The first problem I have with this demo is the vocals. They are annoying, and I hate them. <laughs> is that in capitals? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of um, with an exclamation mark as well. Oh, one. shit. Uh, I'm glad that those are sparsely and rarely used. The first track doesn't have them. A relief, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I admire about this band is that, although they have released some very good records, technically speaking, they left this direction and ent enter the black metal sphere, proving that music is not dictated by the technicity of a song, but by the mood it creates. So while listening to this band's later outputs, I realise what a slap in the face these guys give to the ones that listen, composed to the music. Uh, just for the sake of complexity and disregard, disregarding the magic that the music is creating. Music isn't notes. The notes are music. Oh, God. Uh, so that, I guess, concludes um, 1989. What a wonderful year. Yeah. And the first episode. They'll probably be we're hoping that this is going to be on multiple um, platforms as well. Uh, we haven't got to that um, extent yet, but fingers crossed that... If you type in X and Ferris, you will... Um, in any of the major social media Yeah, sites. yeah. So we'll be setting up a Twitter. Uh, Twitter? We'll be setting up a Twitter. Uh, uh, we have a Facebook page, X and Ferris. X and Ferris podcast. Podcast. And we also have an uh, Instagram, uh, yep. which is just X and Ferris podcast again. Uh, so you can find us there. Awesome. So anyway, that rounds us out. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.